the optimal life. Neil, what's up, man? I'm doing all right, Nate. What's the word? Well, the word is you seem to be a very interesting person. And I'm looking forward to getting into your background and all this technological AI stuff. But I want to start here. I watched a little bit of you on Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson. What was that experience like? You get to be a guest on one of the big podcasts with one of the baddest men to ever walk the planet. <laughs> he's one of the baddest men, but he's actually a pretty sharp and philosophical guy. So it was it was quite a fascinating conversation, especially given that uh, the entire interview, uh, Mike and his uh, co-host Evan were smoking weed. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've seen them do that quite often. That's pretty much the whole theme of the show. If they're not smoking weed, they don't they don't record the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so did they were they able were they offering you the toad and all that stuff? Yeah, they, they were. I. I wasn't going to do that, um, but it was still a great conversation. I mean, uh, Mike Mike was a little freaked out about, uh, you know, because you can have AI learn your, your boxing technique and all these things. And they wanted, like Disney was talking about setting up a virtual fight with the AI Muhammad Ali versus an AI Mike Tyson. And Mike was actually freaked out about the whole thing because he's like, man, Tyson's going to kick my butt. Or, sorry, <laughs> Ali's going to kick my butt. He's a way yeah. better boxer than I am. <laughs> Yeah, that had to be a neat experience. I'm sure you got a ton of exposure. After you go uh, as a guest on a show like that, that gets a huge view on uh, YouTube and probably on the audio as well. What what did that do for your brand? Were you, were you getting flooded with emails and messages? It definitely, definitely spiked. And interestingly enough, you know, I've done all this work with the United Nations and all that. Despite all those things I've done last like seven years with them, the one thing they always zero in is on, dude, it was so cool. You're on Mike Tyson's show. <laughs> like, like I'm doing right now? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. I've I've watched some of Mike's stuff. And what is fascinating to me, as you alluded to here at the beginning, he's a really intellectual, insightful human being which most people don't know. They think of Mike Tyson as I want to eat your kids and all the crazy stuff from the press conference days. But when you look at him now at this point in his life, he's a really almost like a philosophical kind of character. It's, it's impressive. I think he's got a boom rap, Nate. I mean, I, I get the, the stereotyping of boxers and, you know, he has the lisp. And so I think people just think he's not as smart as he really is. And, if, you know, if you ever read his biography, um, it's just amazing what he even survived to get where he is today. I mean, Absolutely. He, they found him like he's 13 years old and basically tried to make him an attack dog. Yeah, that's right. They saw they saw this this bulldog that had all the potential in the world to be a destroyer. And, and that's exactly what he ended up being. But I find that also fascinating, too, that a human being that's so aggressive and made a living on scaring the crap out of people and beating the crap out of people and was always, he talks about it, how he lived in a fear state constantly, even when he was the most famous boxer, most one of the most famous people in the world, he still is, but in different ways. But when he was at the height of his game and when he was in his prime, he walked around in fear all the time. He walked around angry all the time and how a human being is able to then kind of pull a 180 and put all that stuff to rest and become a completely different person emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And I'd imagine that that probably is something that AI and artificial intelligence 
that when you guys are looking at, at human dynamics and behaviors, I, I assume AI is kind of taking note of that and uh, your guys are creating things or people are creating uh, intelligence that is able to kind of on the drop of a dime go from aggression to love and prosperity. Talk a little bit about about the uh, the things you're doing on the AI side. Well, there's a lot. And you're absolutely right, Nate, on like AI's ability to, to, to spin on a dime and actually see that in people as well. There's a whole field we call artificial empathy. So even though like the machine doesn't feel the emotions, it can detect them in real time from people and change how it interacts with you based on your emotional state. So like, you know, if you're having the, you know, you're chatting with your, uh, you know, Citibank AI concierge or something like that, and suddenly you get uh, sound frustrated, it, you know, it will try and soothe you. You know, last night, oh, I'm sorry, did I do something wrong? And if you suddenly get happy, I joke around with you. And, you know, people are surprised by that saying like, wow, how can a, a system that doesn't understand emotion be so good at actually seeing it and dealing with it? And that's actually something that we're tapping into to help people for, with mental health issues, as well as actually help people become better communicators, like you know, teacher, student, parent, child, spouses, friends, coworkers. It's, it's amazing how we can augment our own abilities with machine capabilities. So when you say personal concierge at Citibank, is that what they're currently using right now? You have the Citibank mobile app, they are using like a, an AI concierge on it. And it is using some of this artificial empathy and the area we call uh, neuro-linguistics to actually create a more rich and deeper engagement with the customer. Each customer is actually treated differently based on what they value and how they like to communicate. Wow. So if I give my concierge a call at Citibank and I say, I have a, a charge on here for $500, I have no idea where it came from, and, and I'm ranting and raving and I need to get this removed, the concierge will pick up on my frustration? I'll forget about your frustration and probably your anger too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, so, what, so in, in that instance, what is the uh, concierge programmed to to do, I mean, you talk about, but give us some more, more detail. Well, it'll obviously help you resolve the issue, but it will do it in a way that uh, is reflective of your emotional state. So if you're frustrated and angry, you know, it'll, it'll sound very apologetic and say, look, hey, I, hey, Nate, I totally get it. And I'm sorry you had to spend your valuable time on this. We're gonna get this straightened up. I just need a little bit of information from you. And it'll, it'll try and be soothing. And it'll try and focus on like, hey, we're gonna fix this. You know, so it's it's acknowledging and responding to your frustration. And do I know I'm talking to an AI? Yeah, they don't make a secret of this. I, I know that some brands, it's a little different. They don't tell you if you're talking to a machine or a person. But Citibank has made no secret that this is an AI concierge. Wow. And how long have you been studying artificial intelligence, Neil? Um, well, longer than I've been calling it artificial intelligence. I, uh, I first got into this around 2004. Business intelligence was really taken off and you know, I was working with some very big clients and you know, I had guys like Michael Eisner and Warren Buffett all those telling me like, you know, it's amazing what machines are telling us from all this data. And I was just thinking to myself, the machines actually aren't telling us anything. The, the truth is, is we have new tools where we can, <clears throat> you know, 
collect and store the data. We can slice and dice it. We can make these nice looking reports. But the machine isn't actually drawing any insight from it. And then I started thinking like, but could it do that? And that's what started my path down artificial intelligence. Although back then I was calling it enterprise intelligence. And then when I got invited to join the original Watson team. We were actually calling it cognitive computing. It wasn't really until after Jeopardy that everyone really started, hey, you know, this really is kind of AI-ish and started adopting that uh, verbiage. When you say AI-ish, uh, this is such a broad term, artificial intelligence. When this term first started becoming more mainstream, I used to think ET phone home. <laughs> you know what I mean? So... When I, when you hear this artificial intelligence, it's really such a broad term. How do you how do you define this term? Uh, it's a good question because it's it, it's uh, it's a bit of a moving target. But really, today, I define AI as something that has three things to it. So one, it's not really programmed. It's not like it's a bunch of code it's executing. You actually, the machine actually learns like a person does. So you know it. It observes things, it makes decisions, it tries things, it experiments, you give lots of data, like reading books or things like that. And that's actually how it learns. What you really do is, sort of programming, is you give it a, a set of rules, we call it ground truth, on how to make decisions. So uh, imagine you have a three-year-old child and you're trying to explain good versus bad behavior. You can't walk through like every scenario. And so you give the child some rules on so they can make the distinction between good and bad. You do the same thing with an AI system. And so that's what we call machine learning. That's one piece. The second piece is it has the, actually the ability- Let me, let me just stop you real quick, just for sure. if you don't mind, to break this down. So the first piece is machine learning, good versus bad, but give a little more of an example, if you would. How do you teach the machine that, ooh, this was not something I want to do versus, ah, yes, this is something I do want. Oh, that's that's where you set the rules, the ground truth. So you might say something, something that hurts a person is bad. Something that helps a person is good. You know, something that makes a person happy, right? And these become the, the guidance for when it makes decisions. So as it reads things and it learns things, it's applying this and it's trying these things. And then you have a human teacher or set of teachers that as it does things, said, oh, okay, yeah, that's good behavior. Oh no, that's actually bad behavior for this reason. And so it goes through this iterative process and learns and learns and learns, but it has an eidetic memory and it can process information so quickly and do so many things so quickly that it learns very fast. What kind of machine are we talking about? Uh, it just, it just, it's it's not regulated so much by the the processing power or anything like that. It's it's more about the time, the amount of data you can give the machine to learn. But so, when you say machine, and pardon pardon my ignorance here, because this is uh, not stuff that I, I'm very familiar with, which is also why I'm fascinated by it. When you say machine, are we talking about like a, a robot? Are we talking about a computer? Uh, what does it look like? It could be anything like that. That's the thing about. AI, it could be embedded in a, in a server, it could be in a robot, it could be in your washing machine. It's just something where they're, think of it as like a kind of a, most AI is like a cloud service. So you can put it into any kind of device. And it's reading and it's learning things based off of keywords and formulas? Well, it's not keywords. 
that that's actually the second part when it comes to AI. It's actually understanding natural language. So for better or worse, we're all kind of wired on Google and we've learned that gotta find the right keywords to get the right information. AI doesn't work that way. You know, if you put into Google, show me restaurants near me, but not pizza, Google will show you a bunch of pizza places because it sees that pizza keyword. Mm. If you tell AI that, it'll understand that you're saying like, the not is the exception, right? I understand that Neil's telling me that he wants to find some restaurants near him, but he doesn't want to eat pizza. So I can look at restaurants near him, but I might know some other things about Neil. Like he doesn't, he likes sushi. So maybe I'll float the Japanese restaurants to the top of the list. I also know he doesn't like to spend too much money on restaurants. So I might strip out some of the more expensive restaurants, but it intuitively understands the actual connotation from what I'm saying. So if I said, I'm feeling blue because it's raining cats and dogs, an AI system will understand that I'm not physically the color blue because small animals are falling from the sky. It understands I'm making a, like a metaphor and saying like, okay, he's really referencing that he's sad because it's raining very hard. Mm. That's not something a typical computer system can do. So that's the second step. Is there Are there others? There's one more. The third component <clears throat> is that AI has the ability to interact with you like it's another person. <clears throat> Excuse me. So again, you think about what we normally do. We try keyword search, we get like a bazillion web pages, we learn some more things. You know, you go through a lot of steps to find the information you're looking for. <clears throat> With AI, it's like having a conversation. So like if I want to buy a bicycle, I could just, if I had an AI system that knew bikes, I could just go, hey, I want to buy a bicycle, which one should I get? And it'll probably come back, well, Neil, why do you want a bike? Okay, that's a good question. I want to get back in shape after the pandemic. Okay, where are you going to ride your bike around? I'm just going to ride around in the neighborhood. And how often will you ride it, Neil? Um, I'll probably ride it four or five times a week, an hour at a time. Okay, great. Here's what I think the best bike is for you. So it's, it's a conversation like with a best friend that knows about bikes. I get to the information much quicker. But I use best friend intentionally because while it's getting more information from me to make an informed recommendation, again, it's taking things you may already know about me. Like you might be thinking like, you know, Neil says four or five times a week, but he's a pretty busy guy. It's probably really once or twice a week. And as a result, he probably doesn't need like a, you know, a fancy, you know, one of those lightweight multi-thousand dollar bikes. You just need something all around the, the neighborhood, you know, and something that you can just store easily. And so it's taking all those factors in like a best friend would to make that recommendation. So I don't have to go and figure all that out on my own. The AI actually helps me do that. So are you suggesting that the future may look like we all have our own personal AI best friend assistant? That is the holy grail, Nate. If you ever watch uh, Black Mirror, there's an episode, White Christmas, where they create these cookies. Each person has their own AI personal assistant that's apparently uh, created from the brainwaves of each person. That's actually considered the holy grail. That's what most people actually want. An AI assistant that knows them extremely well and can anticipate their needs. I, so that's, and, and if that is actually where we're going, as a society, how many years from now do you see that happening? 
Uh, it's it's tough to say, Nate. I mean, given the current state of where we're at and data, we're probably a couple of decades away, but we're always making these amazing leaps in technology and advancement that it could be six years away. There's just no way to put a, a, a real... What does this look like, Neil, in practical, in real life? Is this like a, a handheld device? What does this look and feel like? If we had it today, it would be an assistant on your phone, right? We're all carrying a phone. It would be on there. We have our phones with us all the time, so we can access it anytime we need to. And what do you think it might look like 15 or 20 years from now? 15, 20 years from now, I think it's an avatar in the metaverse. So think about that we're living in an XR world, extended reality world, so it's literally always with you. Maybe it's hanging out on your shoulder, in your pocket. Maybe it just appears anytime you call to it. But I think we would actually interact with it in the real world, even though it's a virtual avatar. Avatar in the metaverse. Explain, because people still have no idea what you're talking about. What, what, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> right? yeah, good, good, good point, Nate. Um, if you've ever watched the Iron Man movies and you see how Iron, you know, Tony Stark is, he's working with his you know, AI assistant Jarvis, but he's able to manipulate designs and things in the real world. So even though it's like a virtual display, he can, he can actually interact with it. That's what we really call the, the metaverse. So this notion of extended reality where real reality and virtual reality are intertwined together. So we have our real life, our virtual life, and we have them snapped together in extended reality. So that's what we really reference as the metaverse. All right, I need to take a break now, Neil, because my brain's hurting. <laughs> Sorry, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> this is incredible stuff. It's really hard to wrap my head around, and I'm sure a lot of people feel this way, but if you would have told us 20 or 30 years ago that we'd be looking and talking to each other on the phones and all this other stuff, you would have said, no freaking way, man. This is like real life George Jetson that we're living right now. And what kind of, I mean, you think about how we've made leaps and bounds in the last few decades at such an accelerated rate. I mean, what is, like you're saying, another 20 years look like? Uh, no, no idea, Nate. I hate, I hate that question, right? Because if you just look back 20 years, we didn't predict half the stuff we have today. Right. You know, it, that's, that's the thing. I think we'll all be interconnected. We'll all have metaverse avatars. But I think that's just scratching the surface. I mean. Well, you are, you are a disruptive thinker. And that's one of the things that you preach. That's one of the things that you help people with is, is this art of disruption. You call it T-U-C-B-O. Talk a little bit about that. Well, my, my work as a, like a management consultant and doing all these things, I, you know, I've probably done a dozen once in a lifetime like opportunities. And people always say like, how in the world do you come up with these ideas, right? And how are you actually able to make them successful? And you know, I say what probably a lot of people say is you just got to think differently, right? And they're like, great, you know, I'm not Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. And it just dawned on me that you, you don't really need to be that way. And I started thinking about how I do things. And I was able to put that towards a methodology called Tuckbo, T-U-C-B-O. And it's basically a soup to nuts framework on how you can actually develop these disruptive ideas and then actually bring them to market successfully. So it, it stands for think different, understand different, create different, be different, own different. Are you working on those things 
at this very moment? Are you working on trying to bring new product to market? Uh, constantly. I mean, I got 117 projects going on, like just with the United Nations alone around the sustainable development goals. I'm working with uh, the movie studios and the theaters on a new form of marketing to improve customer engagement. There's there's lots of things. The, the great thing about Tuckbo is that people can learn it and apply it for themselves, for their, their business. Or I've even seen people use it for their personal lives, like trying to figure out their next you know, step in their career path. And when you say that you're working with the United Nations on 117 projects, these are all artificial intelligence related? That's correct. I helped them create the AI for Good initiative. And so we're using AI to try and make some of the sustainable development goals a reality. So if you're not familiar with the goals, it's things like end hunger, it's uh, zero poverty, it's good health. I won't bore you with all 17 but they're very big and lofty goals. And technology, particularly AI, has been a great bridge to actually accelerate making some of these things happen. How, how does AI potentially end hunger? Well, most people are surprised when I say this, but we actually have the ability to grow more than enough food for everybody in the world. So I've, I've worked with even farmers in areas like Bangladesh and Malawi, where they have very poor topsoil, very poor resources. But thanks to AI and helping them analyze the, the topsoil, the, the climate now and in the future, potential insect infestation, how much food they should grow based on nutritional needs, how much they should grow as a cash crop. You know, the AI has come up with even things like, well, you know, if you plant this type of seed, two milliliters to the right, you'll improve crop yields. And we've seen these farmers now grow about 30, 35% more food using 20% less water, using 15% less topsoil, but they're now growing enough food to feed the community as well as have extra stuff to actually sell wow. and bring more cash to the local economy. That's incredible. So the, the computer, the machine is actually able to analyze and understand where crops can be grown optimally, which leads to, of course, more, more opportunity, more food, more whatever, nutrients, all that kind of stuff for, for more people. That, that's right. So it's, it, it's a multi-win. They, they're better fed. They have better nutrition, so better health. They're using less of their resources so they can, in the future, expand and grow. And they're bringing more money to the local economy that helps create jobs, which help fund schools and you know hospital facilities. So it's across the board, you know, one. It's funny. It's one small thing that we as humans have been doing for like fifty thousand years. It's just amazing what the machine is able to help us. These AI systems, because they can process so much data, help us become better at optimizing. So, we're not so who are these farmers farm. that you're talking about, for example? Who are they working with? Are they working direct with a United Nations Board of Advisors? Are they working with the governments? Are they working with private companies uh, locally? How does that work? They're, they're working with the, the, local, like, the local governments as well as the UN, but it's also been set up that they can actually do a lot of this on their own. We, we've provided the, the technology on tablets they can use the camera and put these things in. So there's a little bit of training, but we set it up that they don't need a lot of infrastructure. They don't have to make a lot of capital investment. As long as they can keep the tablet charged and they can have a 
you know, a 3G network connection, they can actually use the, the AI, like agricultural assistant. Mm. Tell us another one or two, like mind blowing things that you're working on. I would have never thought AI can have such a direct impact on more food creation. What, what What's one or two others that would be pretty eye opening? Well, another one actually is around mental health. So, you know, even before the pandemic, it was a huge problem. In fact, loneliness was the biggest illness in the world. And there's not enough therapists and things to actually help people, particularly teenagers. And so, you know, I've been working with a, a company called Cyrano AI, which was actually started by a therapist, where we've built this AI technology, like this AI engine that has a lot of psychographic and neuro-linguistic capabilities so that it can actually engage with these teenagers or, or people generally that have mental health issues as, a, as an outlet, not as a substitute, but as an outlet to, to get help. So there's a safe space for them where they feel like they can, they can talk and they can be, feel trusted, but they feel like they have something to connect with. So they don't feel so lonely, they don't feel as depressed and it helps build up their confidence so they can actually try and get help Hopefully, when there's more therapists actually available, but at least they're getting some level of help as they're waiting. Mm. Wow, that's fascinating. And like you said, that's really one of the, the biggest problems everybody faces. I don't care where you live in this world. The mental health aspect is, is, is tremendous, like you say, especially with young kids. These kids that are growing up now that are in their teenage years, I mean, they know nothing other than this social media, internet. This is their whole life. And while there's a lot of benefits that come with it, there's also a lot of downsides. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of uh, comparison issues and self-worth issues because of the ability to see what's going on in any spot of the world on any second and compare your own situation to really what you're looking at is, is a fallacy. It's looking at it's a fantasy. So there are a lot of positives, but there's also a lot of cons. And I'm kind of wondering what your thought is on artificial intelligence in the same way. It sounds amazing to be able to have your own personal assistant in 15 years from now on your shoulder, whispering to you, telling you what to do, your best friend, et cetera, et cetera. But what are some of the unintended, possibly the unintended consequences, Neil, when you look at a world where we have that type of intelligence, uh, what are some of the potential pitfalls that may follow? Well, unfortunately, there's a few. We're, we have, as human beings, uh, addictive personalities to things. And, you know, there's a great concern that rather than use these things as, as tools to complement our lives, that we might grow addicted to it and use it as a substitute to actually engage in, like, human relationships. So if you ever, like, watched the movie Her, Nate? No, I haven't. Um, with, uh, I think it was Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson. You saw people get addicted to their AI personal assistant. In fact, someone fell in love. That was the whole premise of the movie, that they were foregoing normal human relationships to be with their AI, you know, concierge. Mm. And I think that's a real fear. I think there's also a real concern that, you know, as, as we move to the future of work, that we'll become more dependent on AI. So rather than us, like we've historically done as society evolve and tackle more complex, more value add work, we'll let the AI do the, the normal stuff and we'll all go binge watch Yellowstone. 
So I, <laughs> I can see, unfortunately, this big challenge of do we rise to the, the next challenge or do we all just go for the infotainment? Wow. Yeah, that's definitely something that, that's on my mind. Looking at uh, that potential, the potential to become even more antisocial. I look at the metaverse as the same thing, Neil, and I don't know as much about it, obviously, as you do, but boy, why do you have to get off your couch and go out for dinner with friends when you could sit sit down and feel like you're there anyways? You well, know, like the, that's the that's that's the risk of do we really lose touch with humanity? Yeah, and I think that's the big challenge is that we've created more safe spots and comforts through technology and the a virtual world and now a meta world. Does that become the main substitute? Do we become so not just antisocial? Do we become afraid? of basic things like engagement or rejection that we seek that, you know, artificial companion. Jesus. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of other things that, that will come of this as we continue to evolve, but man, I, I forget 20 years when you look really far ahead, 50 to a hundred years. Um, what, what does this, what does society look like? I know it's impossible, Neil. <laughs> but but and I know you hate this stuff, but really, I mean, when you think about another another fifty years from now, a hundred years from now, we all have the, these. The AI may seem like it's outdated. I mean, a, a pocket pal may seem like it's outdated. Where where are we going? Is 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 and is there a risk that we kind of just is there somehow a, a risk that humanity ultimately comes to an end? Uh, there's always that risk, Nate, but I, if we're talking like 50 years out, I, I don't believe in the Terminator future. The machines aren't going to rise up, conquer the world, or eradicate humanity. I really believe in the cyborg future. And I've already started to see some of the things, like even some of the things that I've worked on, we're moving towards this, where we're going to integrate some of these like AI and machine capabilities into ourselves that we're going to become a blending of basically humans augmented by like machine capabilities, like eyes that can see thermal heat, uh, you know, that will get stronger, will get better protection against, well, um, non-computer viruses. So that, I think that's really what I see in 50 years is really going to think about how we're actually integrating the technology into ourselves as people. Elaborate on that, if you would. When you say integrating the technology into ourselves, and again, when I, when I hear that, I'm thinking, what, are we putting computer chips in our brain like Elon Musk wants us to do? To a degree, actually, yes. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know, we were working on a research project with a lot of success that, like, take someone that's born without, uh, like, a hand or they lose it in an accident. We know the, the brain can still send signals to the stump, we don't actually need to put a, a chip into your brain and try and decode that. Um, you know, working with some doctors and clinical researchers, what we understand is when the brain sends the signal to the stump, it triggers a process into your body. And part of that process is muscle and tendon motion. And so what we've actually been able to do is put like an IoT sensor band around the person's elbow. And AI will actually read those muscle tendon motions, decode it, and move a robotic arm or robotic hand. So we've actually been able to restore some level of mobility to a person without a limb. There's already stuff like there's, I think it's been done a dozen times now where we've been able to install 
digital cameras in a person that's vision impaired, like they're blind, and transmit the signal into the brain. And so people can see it's black and white and fuzzy and it's hellishly expensive, but over time we know that all of that will improve. Mm-hmm. So those are elements we're already seeing is like we're augmenting a person's capabilities. Granted, right now it's because they have some sort of disability, but we know that we can restore we've been able to restore our level of sight or our level of mobility. I think as we perfect this type of technology, as we advance AI even more, I can see how we start augmenting other capabilities, whether you're disabled or not. And that's what I really mean by cyborg, that we're really going to have like implants in our body. Wow, that's really unbelievable. It's scary, it's exciting, it's everything. It's it's incredible, it's mind-blowing. One thing I meant to ask you, Neil, you say you were an IBM master inventor. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> Uh, at, at IBM, they have a special distinction. So I think there's only 300 IBM master inventors, but you've basically developed like intellectual property and technology that's such a game changer that it's like created a new like industry and it's generated billions of dollars of revenue for the company. What did so, you create for IBM? Uh, it's all my work in AI and all the stuff that went into Watson, IBM Watson. Mm. That's that's pretty neat. So there you have it, folks. You're talking to uh, or you're hearing from an IBM master inventor, one of 300 in the entire world. That's pretty impressive. Uh, you wrote a book to Neil back in uh, uh, it was a 2019 bestseller on the AI revolution. Talk a little bit about the book. Uh, yeah, so only a revolution is a. It's actually for non-technical people. So like, like me, <laughs> yeah. And then working with you know a lot of like you know managers, executives, board people, entrepreneurs, they all have the same questions. And I it just dawned on me that as I'm working with everybody one on one, it's not the most effective way to try and help everybody because everybody knows. Look, I should be doing something. I just don't know what it is, and so. I decided to write the book and that's really, it's, it's not just uh, like a, a primer on AI, like what it is, the capabilities, but it actually helps you understand how you can actually use it. So you can actually figure out an opportunity and actually bring it to life because you don't really need to be a software engineer or a data scientist to use the technology. And if you're hoping that those people will tell you what to do, the problem is they probably don't understand your business or your domain well enough don't understand those pain points to understand what the opportunities really are. And so that book helps you understand how you can actually do that. And there's a, quite a few interviews from a lot of good friends of mine, like Peter Diamandes and all that, that show what they've been able to do with the technology. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and we'll link you up in the show notes uh, uh, on that. Um, you've, uh, you've, you've done some fascinating things. I saw it on your website. I, I've seen that you've even shared the stage with Gary Vee. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what was that? What was uh, that like? Uh, Gary, Gary V is a very energetic, shock kind of guy, but uh, he he makes some very insightful points. So I was lucky enough to be on stage with him, and then I was on a panel with him and Common, the rapper. Oh, nice. So we were just talking about what a, what a diverse group of people. Yeah, <laughs> we, were just, <laughs> we were just talking about like emerging technology, like AI and blockchain, and what this is going to mean for for just people and society in general and like how how is it that 
each one of us can take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, that's beautiful. And of course, Neil, you also do consult with private private sector, entrepreneurs, et cetera. I, I do. I feel like everyone actually has a billion dollar opportunity. Just sometimes it's, it's tough to see and tough to figure out how to execute. So I still enjoy doing that work and helping people bring their, their dreams to reality. Well, if you can show me how to turn this podcast into a billion dollar opportunity, I'd be happy to talk to you. Well, we'll talk offline, Nate. We'll, we'll figure out where the opportunity is for you. That sounds fantastic. Uh, where can people find you online, Neil? Uh, best places are like my website, which is just my name, neilsahoda.com. Uh, you can see what I'm up to. There's also a contact form. So if you have any questions or want to bounce an idea, I'm always happy to check it out. Or you can follow me on social media. I'm very active on like LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram the whole nine yards. So if you just want to see what I'm up to, feel free to, to follow me or connect with me. And where, where do you feel like you get the most traction of all those social media sites? What do you like the best? Um, I get a lot of traction on LinkedIn because I think mm, a, that's a lot, everybody, a lot of people, everybody says that. Yeah. I think everyone's looking for business help and that's, that's, that's the place to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, we'll link you up in the show notes, Neil. Thank you for uh, sharing insight into this really incredible technology in the future and uh, continued success with everything. Hey, my pleasure, Nate. Thanks for having me on. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course. You could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps. Wherever you may be listening, Please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.